If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the December 9th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight in Storytellers, Michael Taylor Gray takes one for the team and sits down across from Florian Klein, a.k.a. porn star Hans Berlin, in a small dark room. I can't believe you just said takes one for the team. But you know, journalism is a tough job, Chloe, but someone has to do it. I have no regrets. Some scrapes and bruises, but no regrets. Tonight, it's a double feature of Storytellers. This one with Hollywood's bad boy, Jasper Cole. There's a story behind the story, but first, the honest tea. The process for picking stories each week is not an easy one, and... We go through, and a lot of the stories around our community are difficult. They are often negative. They're about things being done to us. And I think it's time for us to take a little bit of a look at things that we're doing in the community as well. And let's start with a story from Rain Dove. Michael Taylor Gray, who is Rain Dove? Rain Dove is a gender nonconforming model. And they gave a masterclass moment online on social media when a mother of a child lashed out at them claiming that they had made her child sick. And by sick, the mother meant? She meant that her child had asked about binders. Right. And for those who don't know, binders are something that a lot of trans men will use to cover their breasts. She said that her child, Sammy, said to her, I want to be a boy, and had asked about binders. And then it went from there. And that it was that leap you know, that the mother said, lashed out to Rain, saying that they had made her child sick. So this is starting out in a pretty incendiary fashion. Very this much could, so. This could go real bad real quick. I can see a lot of ways that that could happen. But Rain didn't take it that way. Rain had a lot more patience than many of us might have. And what was their reaction? Well, I made notes of the steps that Rain went through because I want to keep these notes to look at and reference until it becomes a habit for me for what they did. 
let's go back just a moment now. The title of the story is A Trans Kid Scared Mom Lashed Out Online. One person's heartfelt response changed everything. And this is from one of our favorite sources, LGBTQ Nation, from their life section, and becoming one of my favorite online journalists, Bill Browning. And this is from Friday, December 6th. Brain walked the mother gently through her feelings. That's one. Two, validated her emotions along the way. And three, led her to a place where she was willing to show the support her child needed. And as we've talked in past shows, support from at least one adult in the life of an LGBTQI young person can decrease their chances of suicide attempts by 50%. That's a lot. Which is unbelievable and shows the importance of having somebody in your life who will accept you. Now, Rain did a great job in validating the feelings of the mother. Rain did a great job in putting the conversation into a positive place where the mother could get past her anger and also come into a space where, well, you know, I really do want the best for my child. Michael Taylor Gray, I think there's a lot of fear on behalf of parents when they hear that their child might be trans. And this story immediately brought to mind something that you hear me talk about quite frequently when we have these conversations on honesty, that getting past the why. The why is what you just mentioned. Why do people do this? Why do people react like this? Why do we have to have these conversations over and over and over again? Why? Because people have fears. People have uncertainty. People have misinformation. And people have these belief systems that have been ingrained within them from either a religious upbringing or just the culture that they've grown in, uh, numerous ways that this can affect somebody's belief system to get to this point. So this highlighted the how. That's why I went steps one, two, and three of how Rain Dove took this mother from a place of fear to a place to validating her emotions, never, never saying you shouldn't feel this way, but saying this is why you feel this way. This is how you can get to a place where you can come to an understanding with your child. Your child must have felt very safe coming to you and sharing this information with you, knowing that this was a risk that they were taking. And the mother responded in kind, saying, well, I've always told Sammy she can tell me everything. One of the difficulties about these conversations is coming from the place of a trans woman here. People come to members of our community a lot with their need or their desire, on, in some cases, to be educated. And it puts a little bit of a toll on us to, again, have to go through and over and over and over what I'll call, for the sake of this conversation, Trans 101. And that can take an emotional toll on the person who has to do the explaining all of the time. There's a little bit of an emotional labor involved. There is, and I understand that because in the 1980s, as a cisgendered gay male, before cisgendered was part of our lexicon, I was in college and I directed, one of the first plays I ever directed was As Is. It was in the same time frame, I think, as Normal Heart uh, that came out. And these were plays that dealt with the AIDS crisis. So I was having those conversations. Okay, I'm gay. That doesn't mean I'm HIV positive or that I have AIDS. It was, you know, th- those, those were the words that we were, that's how we were expressing it back then. And I got tired of, it seemed like every play or every movie or every conversation that came out, um, everything that was put into an artistic format was dealt with 
AIDS, if I saw one more play that dealt with somebody tragically dying from AIDS or somebody coming out and, and having to go through such turmoil with their family and their friends, it got exhausting. It really got exhausting. But this is an education. This is an arc. This is a journey that our culture and our society has to go through. And unfortunately, the and you can attest to this, Chloe, that the trans community has been silenced for way too long. And part of that silencing has come from within our community. And I from you know, from the gay male from the gay male community. If you watch Pose, there's one of the episodes in season one, two of the gals go to a gay bar and the owner asks them to leave because they're gonna hurt business. So I, as a gay cisgendered gay male, I apologize. I want to apologize for that level of, of just that hurt and that level of, of selfishness that my community put upon our sisters and our brothers and our transgender community, our family, our, sis, our trans brothers and sisters. You're, you're so much a part of our lives and our family. And so now that torch has been passed on to you. Right. And, you're, and, and yeah, it's exhausting, but you're not alone. You're, this time, you're not alone. Right. And that makes a huge difference. And we're also in the position of just like in the 80s, if you didn't do it, who is going to do it? If we don't do it, if we don't tell our own stories, somebody else is going to do it. And as we talked with with um, director T. Cooper last week, if we're not telling our own stories, somebody else is most most likely to get it incorrect. Thank you. And I am you is a perfect example. It's been on the air since 1974. I love I Am Are You. And speaking of things that I love, let's talk about actress Annette Bening. I adore her. Four-time Oscar-nominated Annette Bening, who should have won a couple of times, but you know how it is. That's the way it rolls. Being Julia, if you see the last 20 minutes of that movie and that's all you see, is one of the finest moments on film I've ever seen of a, of a, of a, a maturing actress really just commanding the, the screen. And she's also somebody as, as commanding as she is. She's also a very private person when it comes to be when it comes to her personal life, her children in particular. But a story came out recently, and of all places, a magazine that yes, I receive, AARP. And what was that story, Chloe? So that story talks about a lot about Annette Benning in general, her life. But one of the things that stuck out for us, especially on this show, is that she has a transgender son and she is very, very proud of him. Did you know this? I had no idea. What's his name? Iris Steven. <laughs> That was a, that was a, I'm sorry, that was a, uh, what do we call it, a pop quiz, a <laughs> pop quiz, and well, we have a, we can't announce those quizzes, but Iris Steven is her son, he's 27, and he's a writer. And, and he's got some work coming out. Absolutely, and there was a conversation, I think, that uh, during that interview with the, uh, with the writer from uh, AARP, she had gotten, she received a call, I think, from her son. Yes. About a book that he was uh, having published or getting, what was... I will say he is currently working on the book. He's currently working on a book. And they were discussing that. And and then she just freely just kind of just it naturally flowed into a conversation about let me let me read the quote because I, I love this. Every mother should talk about their child in such a way. Are you listening, mom? <laughs> okay, here it goes. 
Iowa 27 is a writer, was assigned female at birth and began to identify as transgender at age 14. So that's a little backstory. But this is what Annette Benning said about her son, Ira. He's managed something that's very challenging with great style and great intelligence. He's an articulate, thoughtful person, and I'm very, very proud of him. I love that she said very, very. I do too, and I'm very proud of her because she didn't make it a huge deal, as it shouldn't be. It's just part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, you're bringing up these points that I felt, again, going back to the 80s and growing up through that, and you feel like, look, I'm gay. It's a part of who I am. It's not who I am. And you know me in my sports. I'm going to give a shout out to Dwayne Wade, former NBA, most notably for the Miami Heat. He took some fire for a family picture that went up on Twitter. He got some heat. He took some heat. He did. And it showed his son, Zion, with painted nails. And he came out and he lashed out in a positive, respectful way. Who lashed out? But the, the, the public lashed out. Some, some in the public lashed out at him. Some in the public lashed out at Dwayne Wade. And then Dwayne Wade came out and said, look, there's going to be stupidity out there. My job is to love my family. He also says he doesn't want to tell a lot about Zion's story because that's for Zion to tell. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Thank you, Dwayne Wade. Thank you. Because I know, I think last week y'all talked about outing people. And that's a really touchy subject. It is. And that's not my responsibility. Right. And Dwayne is, Dwayne, we're on a first name basis. Yes, you are. Are you having dinner tonight? I hope so. Is protecting his family. And you may know Dwayne Wade's wife as well, Gabrielle Union. It seems like they're doing a fantastic job handling a situation that the public does not always want people to deal with with grace. So it's good to see that. And speaking of public taking a look at what's going on in the world, let's talk about TV. Let's talk about Dancing with the Stars. And Michael Taylor Gray, I know you're excited. I never thought in my life we'd ever be talking about Dancing with the Stars on Honest Heat. But listen to this. From LGBTQ Nation, from our favorite correspondent, Bill Browning, the first same-sex couple just won Dancing with the Stars in Denmark. I know you were thinking ABC here in in the United States, but in Denmark. Jacob Fowerby and Silas Holst made Danish TV history on Vilmed Dans, their country's version of Dancing with the Stars. That is absolutely amazing because we talk about representation all the time. This is representation on a large scale in a country that's known for being fairly liberal, but the station did take some clapback for having a same-sex couple. They took some Miami heat for doing that. Yes. And I want to read this quote from Jacob Fowerby, who is an actor of note in Denmark. And this is what he said about this experience that he was going into. Not in my wildest dreams did I anticipate this, Farby, a Copenhagen-based actor, told LGBTQ Nation before the winning performance. He said that his goal all along, aside from becoming a better dancer, was to show people that same-sex dancing was something they could tolerate. I love that. He went into this just wanting to become a better dancer and, and create awareness and show people you don't need to get excited about this. It's nothing salacious, just like my interview with Florian Klein. So he did a gay porn. Okay, you know, he's still a human being. We don't need to be too nervous about all this stuff. But the fact that Jacob used the word tolerate for how he wanted people to respond to seeing same-sex couples dancing, I don't like that word. I don't either. That's a tough one because I tolerate things that I don't like. And 
maybe that's where they are right now. Maybe there's a difference in language. I don't know. But for it to translate into English as tolerate is something that doesn't sit well in if that's a goal. And maybe that's a pit stop along the way to a goal. I don't really know. But tolerance is not it for me. Tolerate to me means you're putting up with. It's like, I can watch y'all dance for 30 minutes, but that's it, and then you're going to need to stop. Go back into this box over here, live your life in these establishments, in this neighborhood. I call it the LGBTQI tax. Many of us live in neighborhoods that are a little bit more expensive, a little bit more out of our means for that feeling of safety. And because we're not being tolerated, to use that word, um, in some spaces. Right. And I don't want any more bless her heart moments with regards to how people look at me or react to me. No, none of this doublespeak. Let's just keep moving forward. Let's just show people that this is part of life. People connect in different ways. This is the last season for the television show. Speaking of TV shows, Modern Family. Yes. And I love that that's the name that they chose for that show. Because it shows modern families. Families come in all shapes and sizes and combinations. And that's important. Dancing couples come in all sorts of combinations. And they're modern dancing couples. That's just all it is. Well, Michael Talagray, I am happy to be part of your IMRU family, along with all the other fantastic people here. Welcome back from North Carolina. We're very happy to have you. And thanks for a great show. Thank you. Let's go dancing. I'm ready. And that's... The Honest Tea. Gertrude and Alice in Paris, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. From the day they met in 1907, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas were inseparable. Both were born into prosperous San Francisco Jewish families and were well-educated, and both of them visited Europe as children. Gertrude was a cultural magnet and poet. Alice was more reserved and faded into the background, giving Gertrude the spotlight. Their dog was named Basquette, and they called their automobile Priscilla. Their salon was at 27 Rue de Fleurus in Paris, which was visited by many of the greatest artists and writers of the world. In fact, their home was the center of art and culture in Paris for four decades. They had a vast art collection, including paintings by Matisse and Cezanne. And then Gertrude met Picasso. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Pat Gershinoff. Hello, I'm Jerry Jewell, cousin Jerry from Facts of Life and Jewell from Deadwood, and the author of my new book called I'm Walking as Straight as I Can. And you are listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. Mama told me when I was young, we all were superstars. She pulled my hair, put my lipstick on, and her eyes are her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with all the food in her eyes, she said, cause you have your perfect baby.
Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Now it's a double feature of Storytellers. First up, my interview with Florian Klein, a.k.a. Hans Berlin, from the adult gay male porn industry about his foray into the world of, get this, stage musical. You know, Michael Taylor Gray, we really appreciate the sacrifices you make for our IMRU listeners. I'm a giver. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Now it's a double feature of my favorite segment, Storytellers. No. <laughs> now it's a double feature of Storytellers. And first up, my interview with Florian Klein, a.k.a. Hans Berlin, from the adult gay male porn industry, about his foray into the world of stage musicals. You know, Michael Taylor Gray, we all appreciate the sacrifices you make for the IMRU listeners. I'm a giver. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. I am talking with Florian Klein, who is the creator of Shooting Star, a revealing new musical. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the show itself and how it came to be? Shooting Star Revealing New Musical is a musical love story set in the world of gay porn. And usually when I say that, either ends up in a giggle or people being scared. <gasps> Even though everybody watches porn, nobody talks about it. Because Shooting Star is loosely based on my own experiences. I was shooting with Jesse Aris, who used up all of his porn money to have his own music produced was basically a singing porn star. I saw him back then at Mickey's in West Hollywood. I also saw him in London performing in a jockstrap and sneakers and was singing songs like I'm your porn star. And he was one of my first scene partners in 2013. I started working in the adult film industry in 2012. And that gave birth to the idea of writing a musical that is set in the world of gay porn because a singing porn star porn musical. Where did your porn career start? Here in the United States? It started here, actually, in L.A., in Anaheim. I have the classic story that is also portrayed in Shooting Star of an actor coming to Hollywood to become a star. It just doesn't work out the way that I planned it to, and I ended up in porn. I started go-go dancing at Mickey's in 2010, go-go dancing all over the city, all over the country, and I got approached to do porn. And at that point, I was my standard answer was, no, I can't do that because I'm a real actor. In 2012, I realized I don't really have an acting career that I can destroy by doing porn. I was already close to being 40. And I gave in and I shot my first scene in Anaheim for a website called manhandled.com. Are you originally from the United States? No, I was born and raised in the southern part of Germany, where the hills are alive with the sound of music. What brought you to the U.S.? Well, I was working in the entertainment industry since the mid-90s in Germany as a singer, dancer, actor, and then Disney Roadshow. And then I was also a member of a very unsuccessful boy band in Germany. We released a song called I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight. Oh, hi. I just died in your arms tonight. It must be something you say. I just died in your arms 
the Cutting Crew classic from the 80s. Our band was called FAM, Florian Armando Marcos, so three guys, produced in, in Munich. We had minor success, released by BMG. I think their tactic was they release whatever works they're going to keep working with and what doesn't work, and that was us. That's the end of your career. There was one of those moments in my life where I feel my dreams came true and somebody was reaching out their hand, and then once you want to grab that hand, they pull it away. Success can be very tenuous, <laughs> yes. as we know. So you get a little bit of a taste of that yes. as an actor, as a host, as a singer. And all of those elements come together, and then you come to the United States. What actually brought you to the U.S.? First of all, it was that in 2001, I was diagnosed with HIV. And one of the things that I started having sex in the early 90s, and that was one of the things you were always super scared of, because I came out into a world of condoms and AIDS and death. In 2001, I was diagnosed, and I decided to live my positive life positive and make the Rocky Horror Show motto my motto, don't dream it, be it. Don't dream it, be so in 2002, I felt like I wanted to make one of my dreams come true and go to New York and study acting for three months and then go back to Germany. I never wanted to come here full time. Once you get diagnosed with HIV, even in 2001, it was not a death sentence anymore, but you get confronted with your mortality. Our time on our planet is limited. Okay, I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to visit a friend of mine in New York that I had met in Germany and just go for it. Came to New York, studied acting there, and fell in love with the city and signed up for a four-year program and basically left Germany. She signed up for a four-year program there in New York? Yeah, in New York at HP Studio, mm -hmm. which is a small acting school in the village, founded by an Austrian, Herbert. Berghoff, and a German woman was teaching there, Uta Hagen. That is quite a name in the acting world. Unfortunately, she passed away, so I never took classes with her. I read her book because that was like the Bible at HB Studio. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And so you got to experience that. Yes. So that's part of your background, part of your training. Yeah. Speaking of shooting star, a revealing new musical, which you had a staged reading or presentation in New York first, and then you had a run during Pride season here in Los Angeles at the Hudson Theater. What is the story that you wish to tell with Shooting Star? Because I know you say that it's autobiographical in nature, but it doesn't have a sad ending. The musical itself doesn't have a sad ending. You do give it a sense of hope. What is the story that you wish to tell? What do you want your audience to walk away with when they see Shooting Star a revealing new musical? Destigmatizing the porn industry and its, and its players, its performers. I think a lot of the times when we watch something like Shooting Star, when we watch something like Rent, you learn that there's more that connects us. So I want people to walk away and see, oh, if you work in porn, you're not a victim, you're not a bad person, you're not awful, that they see, oh, these are real people with the same hopes, dreams, fears, with their search for love and for themselves. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with the creator of Shooting Star, a revealing new musical, Florian Klein. Just moments ago, when you mentioned this part of your career, people either giggle 
or they feign some kind of shock. And you have some deeply personal views regarding that. Because you mentioned everybody. Everybody's seen porn. Somebody in somewhere, somewhere, somehow has seen porn. I think Shooting Star is a result of my own thinking that when I... In 2012, as I said, when I gave in to do porn, I felt like a failure. After New York, I moved to L.A. in 2006 and was pursuing acting for seven years. I was really working. I was auditioning. I was working on my craft, but I was not really working as an actor. In 2012, I felt a little bit like a failure that I gave up and started doing porn. But then over the years, I realized that I always wanted to become an entertainer. I came to L.A. to become an entertainer, to make money off of my entertainment. I wanted to have fans. I wanted to travel. And all of that has happened. I made my dreams come true. And one of the things that I realized how hypocritical our society is, because is a Tom Cruise only a good person because he does the real acting, he does the real Hollywood, and is someone like me, who are the dirty little sister of Hollywood, just because we do the c***ing in front of the camera, not behind the camera, does that make us a bad person? Does that really make me a failure? And I've realized, no, because I have live appearances. I do live erotic shows on stage. So what's the difference between me and a Madonna? Yes, Madonna gets paid more money, but we both entertain people. And it's only our society that says, you have sex on stage. Like, that's bad. You have sex in front of a camera. That's bad. Because Christianity, Islam, they all tell us that this is something that we have to keep in the bedroom. Our modern societies tell us that sex has to stay in the bedroom and, and yeah. Was there a, a key moment that you can recall when that perspective started to change, when you took the shame out of it for yourself and realized that your perspective on it, you turned it on its head and went, wait a minute, I'm entertaining, I'm working, I've got a fan base, I can do something with this and I can bring it to a broader audience. Was there a moment when that kind of clicked for you? Not particularly a moment. It was over time that I realized the more open I am about who I am and not trying to hide who I am. I'm taking the material to gossip behind my back away if I'm upfront with it. And I've also realized that the same thing with my HIV infection. The more open I was about it, the less problems I had. When I was trying to hide it, to conceal it, I've always had problems with it. Now I put on grinder and scruff that I'm undetectable, which means that undetectable equals untransmittable. U equals U is also something that I work for, that someone like me who is under successful treatment can pass on the virus anymore because a virus is undetectable when I'm taking a test. I've realized that the same thing with porn, with being open about everything, that I can change people's mind and show them I'm not a bad person and we are not a bad industry. And that's definitely what helped to put Shooting Star together. And it's a show that's funny, it's entertaining. It also has moments where people were crying because it's also very emotional. So it's not, oh, look at us. We are normal people. It's entertainment. I want to thank you for doing this because as much as we glorify in our own culture here and around the world, we glorify violence in film and TV on stage. It's okay to show all of that, but we can't show anything sexual. And for God's sake, showing anything that has anything to do with the LGBTQI plus community. But you give us another opportunity to entertain us and to also look at an industry that has been given this moniker of shame, yet we know everybody behind a closed door has experienced or taken part or viewed some aspect of this industry. I really appreciate your sense of pride and your sense of ownership with the choices you made in your life and the path that you took and how you're able to use that for yourself and use that to lend a wider perspective 
what I'm very thankful for is that porn also gave me a platform to talk about HIV. Something that changed my mind was also when I told my parents in 2014, first of all, about my HIV infection. I always try to keep it from them for 13 years. As my therapist said, the good son syndrome, you can probably relate to that when we felt like something was wrong with us. The good son syndrome, you wanted to be the best son because you already put some pressure on your parents. So that's why I said, like, I kept it away from my parents. My brother did too many steroids as a professional bodybuilder. He developed testicle cancer. Did he think twice about telling our parents about testicle cancer? No, because when you have cancer, it's like you can just go out and tell everybody about it. In 2014, I had foot surgery and I, and I knew I had to be with my parents for a few months and, and have them take care of me. And I didn't want to hide my medication anymore. So I sat them down at some point. I said, listen, it's like I've been keeping this from you and I'm HIV positive, but I'm super healthy and my life is beautiful and I'm happy. And I'm also a very successful performer in the adult film industry. Probably something you might not be happy for your son, but I'm very happy in my life. Maybe we can all be happy. That took forever to say all of this. I was crying. My parents were crying. And my dad said, uh, remember when you came out to us and we said, like, you're a son and we love you no matter what. And that's the same thing here. And, and my mom said uh, regarding my HIV affection that she was sad that I didn't believe in the family and I didn't, didn't tell them before. And they both then said, you know, and with your job, it's like your brother works in insurances. We don't really know what he does exactly. So let's keep it the same way with your job. Just by telling the truth, you help other people. You reached a certain level of confidence within yourself and a certain level of fame and notoriety within your industry. And when you spoke up, your parents supported you. Your fans did too. And they continue to do so. This wonderful musical that you're doing, Shooting Star, a revealing new musical, beyond its initial Los Angeles run, what are your hopes for the show? Well, the next plan that we have is a mid-sized theater production in Chicago because the ultimate goal is New York, an off-Broadway production in New York. So Shooting Star, because it's that musical love story set in the world of gay porn, it's not Broadway material. So we're going to be like Hedwig and the Angry Inch or Naked Boys Singing. We want to be a big off-Broadway success and then send the show all around the world. Does Shooting Star, a revealing new musical, have potential beyond a gay core audience? Well, first of all, I love Brokeback Mountain. I love Call Me By Your Name on Broadway now is The Inheritance, uh, which is called The New Angels in America. All of those, a lot of the times, deal with gays suffering. Shooting Star is a love story. It's about finding oneself. It's about finding your chosen family, about being happy in life. Nobody comes out as gay. Nobody has a problem with being gay. And nobody suffers from AIDS. It deals with subject matter that everybody can relate to. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. It's Shooting Star Musical. Follow me, uh, official Hans Berlin is my Instagram, or Hans Berlin on Facebook. Or you can also find me, Florian Klein, on Facebook. There you go. Well, thank you so much for coming into the studio today and giving us a little taste here of Shooting Star, a revealing new musical. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? You know, Chloe... I do, actually. I know her quite well. <laughs> I'm glad I do, too. I had certain notions, perhaps, or little nerves going into sitting down across from Florian Klein, a.k.a. Hans Berlin from the gay porn industry. But he put all those kind of nerves at rest right away. And we had a wonderful adult conversation about a part of our industry that's been around forever and how he took success in that industry and has used that as to transition into a whole new part of his life. So I really urge people to set whatever preconceived notions that they might have about 
this person and what he's done and what he's about to do and just give it a listen. Give it a shot. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Picasso meets Gertrude Stein coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. While living in Paris, Gertrude Stein and her brother Leo assembled a vast art collection from 1904 to 1913. They purchased two paintings by Picasso, The Acrobat's Family with Monkey and Young Girl with a Basket of Flowers. Leo wanted to meet the artist whose work he owned, so he asked Henry Pierre Roche to take them to Picasso's studio. There, at the cold and cluttered studio, Stein bought paintings worth about 800 francs, including two women at the bar. Then, Leo invited Picasso over for dinner. Gertrude was also a guest, and her friendship with Picasso began after they both grabbed the same slice of bread at the dining table. There, Picasso asked to paint Gertrude. As an early and influential supporter of Picasso, she would play a major role in the development of his art. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Pat Gershinoff. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, just say, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your hand, I'm going, you go far. Please don't chew me when I say, I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself on your set. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. So tonight, it's a double feature of storytellers. This one with another attractive film actor, Hollywood's bad boy, Jasper Cole. You just had all the fun this week. Well, you know, I'm just, it's the bad boys. What can I say? Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. I'm in balmy Palm Springs talking with actor, talent manager, producer, and podcast host and co-host Jasper Cole. You wear more hats than the Queen of England. Now, are there any additional titles that you'd like to mention that go with your name? I used to write a lot, but acting's my true passion. Why aren't you writing? I don't have time because I do all these other things. How do you identify in the LGBTQI plus landscape? Gay man of a certain age, 55 and over, and I've actually been out since I was about 23. The recorded intro to your one-on-one with Jasper Cole podcast describes you as Hollywood's bad guy. And that's always stuck out to me because the visceral Jasper Cole that I see doesn't match, in my mind, who you are internally. Tell us how the Hollywood bad guy moniker came to be attached to you. Well, I'd say for the like the first half of my career, I was playing sort of average guys, kind of I was never really leading guy and I was never really extreme character. 
and I was grateful to get any work, but I was sort of, I fell through the cracks. I was sort of like the best friend, the, the buddy or whatever. And then in 2007, I got cast in a Michael Eisner series called Prom Queen. I got to play this kind of villainous character. It's the first time I'd really played a bad guy, and I got great response from it. I was just turning 40, I believe, around then, and I just made this conscious effort, put myself in my own lane or pick a lane or get typecast or whatever. So I consciously grew my hair out, I grew the beard out, and kind of just changed my whole look, my whole image, and had to sort of reintroduce myself to the business. Now, the Hollywood's bad guy thing, just I think in a series of press that I did for a film, MacGruber, that came out in 2010, the press, they sort of label me Hollywood's bad guy. I always say I'm in a group of really great actors and we all play bad guys in Hollywood. By no means am I the Hollywood bad guy. How does your sexual orientation and how you identify within the LGBTQI plus community, how does that all coincide with that image? And do you see it kind of working together or do you see it as something that you just, that you consciously have to separate? Well, it's interesting. I don't separate it at all. I've sort of just been, I've been out for, since I started working. The irony is, and this is something interesting, I rarely, if ever, get cast in a gay, quote, role now. I don't know if that's because of the parts I play. It just hasn't happened to me. But prior to this kind of look, I mean, I did play after play, you know, Boys in the Band and The Normal Heart. And a lot of my theater career was playing gay characters. But when it comes to TV and film, I think there is this sort of, I think it's not stigma, but there's something about they, there still is a perception of how I guess I should look if I'm going to play a villain. Rarely if sexuality is never in any of the characters I play or have played so far. Hopefully that'll happen. What are people's first impression of you before they speak to you or, or get to know you? Well, I've been told which is odd because it doesn't match me, but I, I have a very severe look at times. That's what helps me in my acting, obviously. I, I must come off a little scary at times or a little standoffish, which is, you know, my real personality is nothing like that at all. And so that's part of the reason I started doing my podcast, One on One with Jasper Cole, just to let people see my real personality. Now, a good thing about me, too, is my voice doesn't really match my look all the time, which has been a plus for me in my acting career because a lot of the bad guys that I play tend to have a little vulnerability to them. I play on that in the characters I play. I always kind of bring a certain vulnerability to them. You're from Georgia, so you have a certain southern genteelness about you that, that comes through with your demeanor. Tell us a little bit more about that. I've been gone 32 years from the South, but there's a dichotomy. A lot of people think Southern accents can immediately make people sound stupid. But like any accent, there's different regions you know, of, of an accent. There's the Appalachian, and there's the blue blood sort of upper class, how y'all doing kind of thing. But I think it's hard to, to ever lose that essence as a child, the way you started speaking. I never really did anything to try to change my voice at all. I just thought, this is who I am. I can turn it up more, obviously, and become more Southern. Do you, do you kind of mess with people sometimes with that? Yeah, I do. In fact, this last, I just played a homeless guy recently, and I didn't even tell the director, but on the very first take, I just went as Southern as I can be. It just took them all that because I was playing this grungy bad guy, but he loved it. He was like, oh my God, Jasper, make, that's your voice for this character because 
it just totally like disarmed everybody. And so it gave this character this, you know, this whole friendly or approach to it. Because I don't think we're all one way or the other, you know, we're all different colors and shades. And so that's what I try to bring to the characters. As active as you are within various aspects of the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, how did you land in Palm Springs? Well, my husband, Dennis, for the first 12 years of our marriage, worked in Phoenix. He would only come home on the weekends. And so, it, not that Palm Springs is halfway between, but it was kind of like, you know, well, let's get a place in Palm Springs and it'll, it's, it'll cut the drive from Phoenix three hours or whatever. So, truth be told, I'd only been to Palm Springs twice in 20 years, hated it. When he told me that, I thought, well, good luck. I mean, enjoy it. I'm, I'm not dying in the desert. However... Like a lot of people's perception, once I actually came here, started spending time here, I fell in love with it. But I still meet people now in L.A. especially who have the same opinion like I used to. People say to me, why do you live in Palm Springs? What is there to do in Palm Springs? I think Palm Springs is like a small town with progressive ideas. So you get the best of both worlds. So given those aspects to Palm Springs with the politics and the high percentage of LGBTQI plus individuals here in the town, do you see yourself sort of exploring some of those possibilities in the political realm? I was never that politically involved. I mean, I always voted. I was always present. But this Trump thing has turned me on to like being a political junkie. Palm Springs reminds me a lot of West Hollywood in many ways in terms of the city government. Like you mentioned, it's predominantly gay and lesbian, trans, everything. All the letters of the alphabet are represented in Palm Springs. Myself, politically, I would never run for office, but I would love to stay involved in local politics. I purposely remain registered in Los Angeles because I feel like I spend more time working there and I think I can lend my voice there as well as here. But my husband, Dennis, is much more active here in Palm Springs politically than I am. He actually would be a really good candidate for something down the line. So you're happily married, living in Palm Springs, booking film and television acting gigs, podcasting four seasons now on one-on-one with Jasper Cole, and now our podcast that you and I do called Breaking the News. You're managing successful clients and producing projects as well. Now, how do you do this and remain one of the most grounded, calm, focused, and kind and supportive people that that I've ever known? Well, thank you for that, first of all. I I think actually living out here helps, being away from L.A. constantly. I mean, I was so rah-rah L.A. all the years I lived there, and I still love L.A., but I would be the first person that would like don't say anything bad about L.A. kind of person. So it's no shade to L.A. But I'm fortunate that I get to work from home. So when I'm not acting, when I do these other things, it's basically the computer and and the phone. So as you know, I can be anywhere in the world actually still managing, producing, and even now podcasting and doing the radio show. You can do that from wherever. As I've gotten older, I've gotten calmer. I don't have to hustle as much. I think I just reached a certain age now where... I'm just grateful and I'm just in the moment and accepting and I'm not, I'm not chasing as much anymore as I used to. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU and you're listening to my interview with Jasper Cole. You're so laser focused on, on politics and you seem to know everybody or have had some experience with politics. Tell us about your interesting connection to the Georgia governor's race. So the current governor, Brian Kemp, he and I went, we grew up together in Athens, Georgia. We were really close friends. 
some years past high school. I know his wife very well and his wife's sister. You know, Athens is a college town, but it's a small town. Now, Brian is obviously Republican and was a Trump supporter. My family's one of the few Democrat family left. I always say last one out of Georgia. We are politically diametrically opposed, but we always had a very respectful relationship because he was Secretary of State. In years before that, he was a, a congressman from Georgia. He actually took over his, his wife Marty's dad's seat, but, his, but her dad was a Democrat, so he ended up changing parties and became a Republican. So, so we've always been respectful, but when he started running for governor this time, I mean, the, the race baiting and the driving that bus around in the van talking about rounding up the Mexicans, and I don't know if you remember, he had a commercial with a shotgun on the front porch. So that person, I, I don't know that person. Like, I've never met him. That's a character he was playing. And so those of us who really loved him and knew him, we, we were very taken back. But I kind of get it now because that's like what some people say about Trump, people in the showbiz part of his life. For instance, Joan Rivers was quoted many times as saying, oh, I just love him because he's just all showbiz. He's just all show. They were really taken back, like who he, who he became when, when he became president. So that's how it's been with Brian. So we've corresponded through the interweb because our families are friends and my brother is friends with him. My brother and his wife were big supporters of Brian. So with him, we've had private conversations, and it just solidified the point I always know is that many politicians are playing a character, but unfortunately, the characters they're playing affect people's lives in horrendous ways. He said to me one time, it's similar to you, you know, you play these characters, and I thought, no, my, my characters don't, you know, change people's lives. And lastly, what, what he also said to me was, like the anti-abortion law, he goes, I'm just fulfilling campaign promises. I know that it's going to get shot down, so it's not really going to pass. But this way I can say I, I fulfill the promises to my constituents. And unlike you, which I really appreciate, you are who you say you are. When somebody really gets to know you, and I really appreciate that about you, what would you like to impart to younger generations to help them understand how important it is to stay plugged into what's happening in the world around us? I feel like it's almost blasphemous if they don't, because they're living in a time now that they have all this technical stuff that they can stay plugged in. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't have the ability to have all the Internet and the Twitter and all the social media. There's not a real excuse. They don't really have a really good excuse for not being plugged in because they have so many opportunities. So I, I think the most important thing is to just enjoy the journey that they're on and be to be themselves. Don't try to please people early on. I wish if I had learned that. And like we talked about living in the moment. And, and quit talking about this thing about when I make it in life. Just know that you're actually, every day that you get up and you're contributing and whatever you're doing in your journey, that is your journey and you're making it. You have to just keep growing and learning. So it's hard to say this because when we were in our 20s, we thought we knew everything. That's okay, but just stay open to knowing that you don't know everything. And as you get older, then you know hopefully wisdom will come more wisdom. But I just think... I'm impressed with the young generation because I think, looking back on my generation, I think they're, they're really the reason we have so much social acceptance, especially with the LGBTQ community. I don't think we would have had gay marriage without a lot of the young mindset. And, you know, of Course in Miracles talks about there's only one mind. We all share one, one thought. So whenever every thought we put out there 
goes into the universe and it's collective. So the more positive thoughts we can put out, the better. Is there a particular thought or phrase or saying that kind of, maybe it's from Course of Miracles for you, that really sticks out in your mind and something that you grasp onto every day that you would like to leave us with as food for thought? A Course of Miracles says there is only love and fear. Nothing else exists. So at any given moment, we choose to be coming from a place of either love or fear. And we have that ability in our lives. So in any given situation, take a moment, step back and go, now, am I approaching this from a fear-based point or am I approaching this from love? Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, we still have a couple of minutes. Enough time for a last word. Tonight, that's an audio essay from Abby Dees. It happened again. Some friends asked my partner Tracy and me, is one of you like more the man in the relationship? This question doesn't upset me, but it's still weird. After all, I've always thought Tracy and I were pretty much on the same spot on the gender continuum. But people keep asking, is one of you the man? Here's what prompted it this time. I put pictures up on Facebook of Tracy and me at a she-she fundraiser. Tracy wore a print dress, and I wore black cigarette pants and a tailored blouse. We both wore makeup and heels, though if we're nitpicking, mine were just kitten heels. Now, there are any number of reasons why I wasn't wearing a dress, beyond the basic fact that my outfit totally rocked. Among those reasons, I'm deathly white, and legs, pantyhose, and suntan shade went out of style, if they ever were in style, in the 80s. Another reason is that I have a nasty scar on my shin from walking into a broken flower pot. And dresses give my rather cylindrical body a chintz-draped pink column look. Not included in this list is anything having to do with gender roles. But in fairness to my friends, they didn't ask just because of that one picture. They'd noticed that most of the time, when they see Tracy, she's in makeup and clothes straight from the dry cleaners. I'm usually in jeans. Maybe lipstick and sunblock. Maybe. So it's not so off the wall for them to wonder if there's something more to this than fashion. What's funny, though, is that they are as much flouters of traditional roles as we are, which is one of the things we love about them. In other words, they're a typical modern straight couple, two generations out from mandatory boy-girl conformity. What I get from this is a reminder of just how deeply worn the gender expectation grooves still are, even if real life has much more room for variety. Like, to me, more obvious questions about Tracy's and my personal style choices might be, Abby, are you a lazy, ADD-addled slug in the morning? Or, Abby, do you just not accept the fact that you're a grown-up now and should probably dress like one? I would have to answer yes to both those questions. But for the sake of argument, let's say that there is something to this question of Tracy's and my gender roles. After all, we're not any more immune to those expectations than my friends are. It's the model we all grew up with in some way or another about how couples are expected to interact. Is one of us more like a typical man or woman than the other? Honestly, I'd have to say yes. It looks like this. When it comes to heaving bags of fertilizer to the backyard and grumbling afterwards about how she shouldn't have done that to her back, Tracy's the man. When it comes to wiring a stereo or fixing the computer, 
I'm the man, and Tracy's the woman making endless suggestions over my shoulder that I try to ignore. When it comes to making charts of finances and household numbers, Tracy's the man, and I'm definitely the ditzy platinum blonde. But when it comes to picking up old socks and underpants from the floor and wondering if Tracy even notices, oh, I am so the woman. However, when it comes to being patient with a curling iron and mascara, Tracy's the total woman, and I'm the man, forever striving to bring my morning grooming ritual in under two minutes. And when it comes to emotional communication, Tracy's the monosyllabic man, and I'm the harumphing woman. But Tracy's still got those big, delicate, girly feelings. Does that answer the question? This is Abby Dees. You know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution, Vosh Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, we'd love to have you. Email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can also hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night.